Good morning, everybody. I'm back, and I'm really glad to be so. Uh, I got back this week uh, from India, and I am so thankful for the ways that I saw God at work. Uh, Thank you so much for praying for us, and also for our team that was in Ivory Coast. They're on the way back right now. Uh, We got to train hundreds of pastors in India, and our team in Ivory Coast literally had the opportunity to see hundreds and hundreds of people um, there in the clinics. This morning, Matthew chapter 18, if you've got your Bibles, and the topic of today is stray sheep and the restoration of the Messiah. If you've got your guides, this is what it's called, stray sheep, the restoration of the Messiah, week 17 in our Matthew series. And if you don't have a guide, I encourage you to get something to take notes with this morning as we seek to study God's Word together. Matthew writes, one of the disciples of Jesus, he writes that we might know Jesus and know Him more. And this morning, uh, the topic that we're going to be talking about today, church, is so, so important. It's a topic that honestly, in our culture today, we don't hear a lot about. But it is a topic that is so important for us to really understand. Uh, For you personally, as a believer and a follower of Jesus, but also for us as a church corporately, as we really, in our hearts, want to live as God purposes for us to live as a church in covenant community together. So this morning, we're going to be talking about what it looks like when a believer sins. When a believer sins and walks away from the heart and the ways of God, and in the process, potentially hurts others in doing so. What is God's desire and design in our lives or in others' lives when we sin and go astray, when there's hurt involved in other people's lives? What is God's desire and design for us, for others, for the church? That's our topic this morning in Matthew chapter 18, and I want us to hear from God's Word. So I'm going to read the chapter, and then we're going to go back through it as we seek to understand what God has spoken. Starting in verse 1, and I read from the ESV. It's on the screens if you don't have your Bible. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to them, to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame 
than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, Truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and a payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will, will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went 
and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all of that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant? Has I have had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is God's Word. This morning we're talking about stray sheep, the restoration of the Messiah. I want to go ahead and give you our core truth for the day, and then we're going to walk through what I believe is the four parts of this passage together. Our core truth of the day is this, and I encourage you and hope that you will write it down so that you're not just a hearer of God's Word, but one who really seeks to understand it, to live in it, and then to disciple someone else in it. Even just this past week, Rob and I were discussing that in India, what we do when we go over is we go and teach what has been taught here. You have an incredible opportunity to, to, to live in light of God's truth, but also to be a part of transferring His truth to others, teaching and training in the Word if you will write things down. So that's what I encourage every week. Here's our core truth for the day. Jesus longs to restore wayward followers back into right relationship with Him and others through the gracious work of the church. Jesus longs to restore wayward followers back into right relationship with Him and others through the gracious work of the church. There's four parts to what I believe I see here in the passage. And I want to go ahead and give you the broad overview outline, and then we're going to walk through it together. So don't let this intimidate you. If you feel like you can't write it all down right now, we're going to walk through this together, and I'm going to give you some principles as we go. But I see basically four parts to the structure of this passage. First, I see a description of stray sheep and the flock's need of rescue. Second, I see a description of a good shepherd and Jesus' heart for rescuing stray sheep. Third, I see God's work through a covenant community. I see the shepherd's method of rescue. And fourth, I see a heart that God desires for us all to have of gracious forgiveness. I see in that heart an encouragement and an instruction, a model for the flock's embrace of those who have gone astray. So we're going to walk through this together, all right? And we're going to start in verses 1 through 9 with the first principle, and that is stray sheep. The flocks need a rescue. And here's what I'm saying here, all right? Believers can go astray. And often, other people get hurt when they do. Believers go astray. They can. And often, when they do, other people can get hurt. 
In this passage, um, in verses 1 through 9, and I know that Tom taught on the first part of this passage last week. By the way, isn't it funny? You know, the week before last, I was taught four chapters in Matthew, and last week, Tom got to teach six verses. I mean, I was just like, wow, what a deal. It was just a joke. Um, But I know Tom, it was an incredible week last week. I'm just so thankful for the heart um, that was communicated of God's Word of, of real humility But I know he taught on the first part of the passage last week, but I want it to connect now to this, what we're studying today. Jesus has a heart for vulnerable ones, for the little children. And one of the things he says here in the early verses is, whoever receives such a child receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones to sin, you see that there in verse 6, excuse me, to, to one of these Uh, little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. He goes on to describe how serious sin is there in verses 8 and 9, talking about it would be better for you to cut off parts of your body than to find yourself thrown into the eternal hell of fire. He's warning against sin, and he's warning especially against sin that hurts other people, especially especially vulnerable people. So Jesus is talking to us about the realities that it is possible for temptation to come into your life and for you to give in to it, for you to, to be wayward. And for you to go astray, to leave God's heart for you, and to leave God's will for you. Then the word picture is that he keeps describing us almost like sheep in this passage, okay? And that's the analogy that I've used to frame the structure of this message. But if you picture yourself as a sheep, all right, and Jesus as a shepherd, and you can picture if you've ever been in an agricultural area and you've seen a shepherd with sheep, the analogy is that he's basically describing that it is, it is very possible for you to leave the fold, to try to leave the fold and get out from under the shepherd's care. In Isaiah chapter 53, all right, many of us are familiar with this passage uh, in verse 6, similar analogy is used when the word says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. It's one of the songs that we sing, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. We say, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Every single one of us, even in our lives, as followers of Jesus, have the opportunity to sin. We have the opportunity to go astray. That's why in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us, lead us not into temptation. It's not that temptation won't be faced by all of us as believers, but our prayer is, oh God, would you lead me not into it? Would I not give in to the temptation that I feel But it is possible 
for us as believers, and can I just get a witness here? Has anyone in their life as a believer sinned against the Lord? Okay, I'd like to see more hands, more honesty. This is okay. I'm not asking us by confessing that to rejoice at it. But what I'm saying is that I believe all of us know by our own experience that even after you have tasted and seen of the goodness of the Lord, even after you have known His rescue in your life, even after you have been redeemed by His blood, that it is possible, and in fact, by our own experience, we know what it's like to know His heart and to know His ways and yet turn away from Him and yet resist Him, rebel against Him, and to go wayward. Whether it's for a moment or whether it's for a longer season, it is possible because of the war within us, even now that we have been born again by the Spirit of God, the war between the flesh and the Spirit, it is possible to find yourself giving in to temptation, to succumbing to sin, and to going astray from the one who rescued you for the very purpose of keeping you close to Him, and to still go astray. And it is possible, if I asked you to raise your hand on this one, and I don't know that I want to because it's a sensitive issue, but I bet almost everyone that raised their hand the first time would raise it the second time if I asked how many of you in your life as a believer have not only sinned against the Lord, but sinned against another person, and in doing so, hurt them and caused them to lack a pure understanding of who the Lord is or who the Lord desires you to be in your life as a follower of Him. Almost all of us, I would think, that raised our hand the first time would also raise our hand the second time. Believers can go astray. Now, in saying that, I want to say before I move to the second point, I want to remind you that just because this is a reality that we can go astray, and by our own testimony we've said we have gone astray, does not mean that we should want to live astray from Jesus. Has God given His grace that we might continue in sin? By no means, Paul says in Romans. By no means. God's grace in our life is meant to lead us to repentance. His kindness meant to lead us to repentance, it says in Peter. So what I'm urging you to see is just because it can happen does not mean that it should happen. And Jesus warns us. He says, woe to us. Woe to us. Sin is dangerous. Now, we might not think it is. Rob Hodum gave me a great illustration a few weeks ago. He was telling me that uh, he, he compared it to an analogy. So, so you might get a new little puppy, all right? Anybody ever gotten a new little puppy? They're the cutest things. Robbie Crafton, your worship associate pastor here, loves puppies more than anybody else I know. If you want to make Robbie just ooze from the inside, just show him a picture of a puppy, and he just goes, ooh, oh, the cute little puppy. So imagine we got a little puppy, all right? And we put that puppy out in our backyard, and we build a big fence around the backyard for that puppy, okay? Now, new puppy might think, this is so cruel. You know, this is so frustrating. 
This is so limiting. This fits. <laughs> All I want to do is go outside and, and, and play. I want to run around in the open. I want to go pee on trees. I want to chase squirrels, right? I want to live however I want to. But what that new little puppy doesn't know is that outside that fence, outside of the protection of you, the owner, that puppy's in a lot of trouble. That puppy doesn't know that there are foxes and coyotes out there. That puppy doesn't know that it's hard to get nourishment on its own. That puppy doesn't know that when it gets too far away, he's going to have a hard time finding his way back. That puppy just doesn't know. And it's so important that in our lives, as believers, when we, when we see what God's instructions is, kind of like a fence in our life, that we don't go, well, dang it, that's so frustrating. And we try to just long for living outside of the authority, the, the rightful realm that God has created us and asked us to stay in, right? So, t- so many times in our lives, we, we just want to, we want, we feel like life is just better outside of the fold. And that God's fences are somehow cruel and frustrating and meant to harm us or to keep us from real freedom. But what God knows is that fence is meant for your good. You staying in the flock is essential for your continued nourishment, for your continued refreshment, for your continued thriving in life as He has designed it to be. Does that make sense? So while it is possible, yes, for you to sin, for you to rebel against the Lord, for you to hurt others, it is not desirable. We should long to stay close to the shepherd. But it is possible for sheep to go astray. And some of you, like the little ones in Matthew 18 that Jesus described, some of you may also have been the victim of someone else's sin against you. And I just want to tell you, um, I am sorry. And Jesus is sorry as well. And we're going to get to his heart here in this next point. But I just want you to know that it is possible for Jesus to be a good shepherd and for you to have still been hurt by a stray sheep. And that hurts God's heart, and it hurts mine. It gets us to point number two. And point number two is that we see not a focus so much on the sheep that have gone astray, but on the shepherd who loves and longs for the restoration of stray sheep. Point number two from verses 10 to 14 is this, and that is that Jesus is a good shepherd. He is, friends, and he longs to rescue his stray and hurt sheep. Jesus is a good shepherd, and he longs, he longs to rescue his stray and hurt sheep. And verses 10 to 14, Jesus says, See that you don't despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 that never went astray. 
So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that any of these little ones should perish. I love the heart of our shepherd. The shepherd here is Jesus. Jesus is a wonderful Savior, and He is a wonderful shepherd to His sheep. He does not just affirm us doing whatever we want and thank goodness for a God who, when we go astray, doesn't just say, oh, well, too bad. It's just one. I've got 99 others. Aren't you thankful that even though you have dishonored Him, even though you have gone into dangerous territory, that your shepherd, your Savior, Jesus, is not a hired hand. He is a good shepherd, and He is committed to search after you when you go astray. He longs for you, and He longs for you to stay close to Him, and He is committed, even at the greatest cost to Himself, to do what is necessary to bring your heart and your life back into right relationship with Him and right relationship with others. He cares for you, and He is committed to you. Some other passages come to mind when I think of this. One is John chapter 10. In verses 11 to 13, we see this passage where Jesus describes himself similar to here in Matthew as a good shepherd. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. Do you see the contrast? Jesus is saying, I love you and I am committed to you. If I didn't, would you get into sin? When the wolf comes to snatch you, I just let it take you away. But I'm not like that. When you get yourself into sin, when you get yourself into a place where you ought not to be, when you are in that dangerous place, I want to tell you, Jesus is saying, I am a good shepherd, and I am not going to just let you go. I lay down my life for you, my sheep. He cares for you. He's committed to you. He even, at the greatest cost to himself, he gave his life so that he could fulfill his promise in your life that not one of his sheep would be eternally snatched out of his hand. He longs for your restoration. In Luke chapter 15, a lot of the Pharisees and the religious people just did not get this. They did not understand how it is that Jesus would have such a heart for such wrong people, messed up, broken people. Anybody ever feel messed up and broken? In my life as a believer, there are many times I'm just like, I'm just so messed up and broken. How is it that God continues to love me and to receive me and to forgive me and to, to restore me 
You got to understand Jesus' heart. As the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling, saying, This man receives sinners and he eats with them. It's a condemnation. They can't believe it. He goes on to tell them the parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he's not lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his own shoulders, rejoicing. I want you to know God's heart for you. God's heart for you is a shepherd's heart. He comes after you. He comes after you when you've gone astray, doing anything and everything to see you restored back into fellowship with Him, into fellowship in the community of other sheep. I love the heart of our Good Shepherd. In Psalm 23, we also see in what we know as the Shepherd's Psalm, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's an image used throughout the Bible. But he says there, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you're with me. And then he gives us a picture. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. One of them is that shepherd's hook. Y'all know what I'm talking about? What is it used for? Snatching back wayward sheep. Grab them by the neck, pull them back in. The other, the rod, is used for bopping them on their head. You stupid sheep. Get back in line, right? Why is it that we are comforted by something that in the sheep's experience, in the, in the midst of it, might look like it's hurting? Dang it, he just got my throat again, you know? Dang it, just bopped me on the head. Why is that comforting? It's comforting because it's reflective and representative of the shepherd's care for us. Our hope is not that we will be faithful forever to God. Our hope is that He will forever be faithful to us. He is a faithful shepherd, and He walks with us to ensure that we stay in the fold. And when we go astray, when we go astray, He is there to bring us back in. He's there to bring us back in. I love that right after that passage that we were just reading in Isaiah chapter 53, there in verse 5, it says, excuse me, verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the second part of that verse we didn't read a second ago, and it says, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. How is it possible? Some of you right now in your sin, right now in the depth of brokenness and despair, and you go, how is it possible that though I, you don't understand, I've gone so far astray. Others have hurt me so bad, or I have hurt the Lord, or hurt the name of Christ so bad. I've hurt the church, the community so bad. How is it possible? It is possible because the Lord has laid on Jesus all of your sin. It is possible because of Jesus for your grace, for his grace to cover your sin and for you to experience his restoration. He longs for you to come back into the fold and he is able to do it because of what he has done for you. Amen? I was in India this past week and 
I had the opportunity one afternoon after one of the sessions to, uh, it was before one of the sessions, to talk to a man there. I'll just call him D because I don't want to give his name because this is put online, this recording. But this guy named D, and I was talking to him about his story, and I wish I had the chance to hear tons of stories because they all have such amazing stories. But this young man was at our training conference because God has recently put on his heart to go to a, to a to, to begin a life of ministry, to leave behind a life of business, and to begin a life of ministry. And I began to ask him questions through a translator about more of his heart. And he told me that there was this village nearby his home village, and God had called him to surrender his life to him in ministry. And he said he began to pray about what to do, and there's this neighboring village that literally has no church in it whatsoever. They are an idol-worshiping village, and they have never, to his knowledge, heard the name of Jesus. And he said that God began to burden his heart for this village in India, near the village where he grew up, and no Christian had ever gone there because the risk of persecution are likely so, so great. And he began to describe to me with tearfulness in his eyes how God had put on his heart, he and his wife had surrendered their life to go and see a church start among this village. And he began to describe some of the things that he was leaving behind in order to do it and some of the commitments that he was having to make in order to to get there and how he didn't know how he was going to be funded and how he was going to have to learn a brand new language. And I began to look at some things on the internet he didn't even know about, some of the things I had access to in terms of missions resources, and I identified that village is on the Joshua Project site a completely unreached village in our world today. Literally, one of the places that we need to see a church started. And here I'm sitting with a guy who God has called to start that church. And I'm just going, thank you, Lord. But I'm listening. I'm listening to the sacrifices that he is making and the commitment that he is having. And I'm recognizing that this could cost him everything. And yet he's saying, I love these people and I want to do everything to see them know Jesus. And I thought, what an amazing reflection of the shepherd's heart. Wouldn't you agree? That Jesus longs, he longs in his love for us, he longs to see us in right relationship with him. And at great cost to himself, he goes after us so that we might continue to be a part of right fellowship in the fold. I love Jesus. Do you know his heart? Third. I want to talk to you about one of the ways knowing Jesus' heart, the way and the method of his rescue, and that is this. God has purposed the local church to work to bring stray believers back into the fold. God has purposed the local church to bring stray believers back into the fold. See, often we sometimes disconnect the things that are on the heart of God and the ways in which God brings those things about. And what I love about this passage of Scripture is that Jesus says to you, I see when you go wayward, and it's really serious. Walking away from me, Hurting others is a really big deal. 
and I have a heart to bring you back in, but let me tell you, let me tell you how I'm going to work in your life to bring you back in. Let me describe to you what the, the staff feels like. <laughs> let, let me help you understand and connect for you practically how I'm going to work in your life to, to make sure that you continue safely in my fold. And that is the passage there in verses 15 through 20. He says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two along with you so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector." What Jesus is connecting for us is that the church of God, the local church here at ICC, if you belong here, we are a tool in God's hand for his shepherding in your life today as a follower of Jesus. God desires for the community that's around you to be an instrumental part of how he protects you and how he brings you back in when you go, when you go astray. Sheep belong in a flock the flock is the church, and the church is a big part of how Jesus keeps you close to him. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, we see a passage of Scripture that says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself, lest you shoot, too should be tempted. The Bible's instruction is clear. We got a role to play in each other's lives. And I love this word in Galatians 6 because it helps us to practically understand more of what Jesus is teaching here in Matthew 18. The word restore is a medical word. It literally means to set a broken bone. Okay? So what he's saying is we have a role in each other's lives. When we see other people in our lives walking away from Jesus in some area of their heart, in some area of their character, in some area of their influence, integrity, life, we have a responsibility, not just an opportunity, but we have a responsibility in love for the other to go and to restore. I love the word restore here because the point is not to browbeat, not to judge, not to punish. The heart here is so important to restore, to see God set something right that is, is broken. And there's a process. Some of us don't like this, okay? We'll get into this in a second. But there's a process here. The process is that he says there in verse 15 that we go and we talk to our brother about it. If they listen, then we have gained our brother. Again, the point here is to win your brother back into right relationship with God and right relationship with the community of God. The point here is not to punish. It's not to condemn. The point here is to see restoration. If they listen, so our responsibility is to go and talk to them about it. You've hurt me. 
What you did was wrong. I've noticed X, Y, Z, and that's not the heart of God. You're living in, and that's not what God desires. Jesus puts on us the responsibility to go and to confront. It's part of his design of keeping sheep close to him. It's the communal work of the church. Now, if he listens, then we've won our brother. There's restoration. If he doesn't, he doesn't say give up. What he says is take another with you. In other words, help your brother or sister know that this is serious, that they're walking away from the Lord and that they have great potential or maybe have already hurt other people, and that is not right. That's not what God desires. It's not what he has designed. And we go with others trying to keep the circle as small as possible, but escalating for the opportunity for that brother or sister to see the seriousness of it and also for there to be a witness and talk to him or her again. Hey, what's going on? I've, we've seen, we've noticed, we've felt, and to seek to win the brother. And he says, if they listen, you've won them. And if that doesn't work, then you escalate it to the church. You, you, you continue to see Jesus putting on us, the community of God, the responsibility to take care of one another and to confront when there's some issue that could lead to waywardness. Does that make sense? Now, the way that this is designed in our culture is we do not like this. Anybody here like confrontation? Some people do. Good for you. I don't. I don't like to confront, and I do not like it when you confront me. Anybody else not like to be confronted? Yeah. Not too cool. Interesting, in previous generations, I really think that there were generations where there was a high emphasis of truth, but honestly, there was probably not as much honesty. There was a lot of faking in church. There's a lot of uh, emphasis on being moral truth and accountability, but there was probably less of an experience of grace. Seems that the pendulum has swung in the exact opposite direction in our generation. Seems like in our generation, there's tons of emphasis on transparency about our brokenness. There's a lot of desire and culture of giving grace. We just want others to give us grace. But honestly, that's about where we want it to stop. We want other people to affirm our experiences and to affirm our feelings as the truth. We've almost elevated our experiences and feelings to be the authority of truth. But we don't want confrontation. We just want acceptance and grace. Honesty is wonderful, but it always has to be coupled with humility to see where you might be wrong. Authenticity is wonderful, but it always must be coupled with accountability because the authority in our lives is not our feelings or experiences. The authority is God's Word. 
And we're called to submit. Comfort in the community of grace is wonderful, but confrontation is also part of God's desire and design. God wants brokenness, yes, but He also wants holiness. And we as a church, as a community of the people of God, have got to desire for honesty and humility, authenticity and accountability, comfort and confrontation, brokenness and holiness. And we have to move from a place of disdaining, talking about our sin or other sin, to a place of actually desiring it. Because in dealing with it in both humility and honesty, there can actually be the opportunity for restoration. Not just sitting in our brokenness, but moving toward Jesus and becoming more like Him. Do you see? This is God's desire, and it is His design. And this is why in our church constitution, there's a clear process for this. We as believers are committed to this. We use this phrase, covenant community. And the reason we use this phrase, it's one of our ICC measures. We say here at ICC, we make a choice to live in authentic relationships, in selfless interdependence, and in loving unity with other believers in the local church. We, as a body, understand that we are not meant to be lone ranger Christians. That is a dangerous place to be if all you are willing to do is to come in and to sit and then to leave quickly, and you live your life on your own, and you are your own authority. That is a dangerous place to be as a believer. God has not designed us to be out on our own. God has designed us to, to, to belong as a sheep in the midst of a fold, and that context practically is the local church. And it is good for us to be covenanted together in community. It is good for us to live authentically, to live interdependently, and to live longing and loving for unity in the local church because in doing so, Jesus is able to keep us close to Him and to keep growing us in relationship with Him. It is a beautiful thing that God uses the local church to help us when we are astray. Now, there's probably two growth points for you here. One is you got to grow in taking ownership of talking to other people about their sin. Not just affirming them when they come. Yes, there's a place to receive people and to say, I'm so sorry. When somebody's confessing their sin and their brokenness, to receive them and to give grace. But you want to see them not just receive grace, but you also want to see them restored to live a life in direction toward God. And we got to be willing to go there with people. And when people don't see it and they haven't expressed brokenness, to be willing to talk to them about what we see. And again, none of this in a spirit of judgment, all of it in a spirit of love. But you know what else it means that we've got to grow in? We've got to be willing to receive other people when they come to us. Some of us are so hard-hearted and prideful and angry potentially that we literally limit other people's ability to come to us because when, when they do with honesty and concern over us, we just go, Rah! how dare you? And we give the impression that we are not teachable. We are not humble. We are not desiring of the good gift that God has in our lives, which is to live not as if we know everything and we're already perfected, but to live humbly in the context of community, to receive others speaking into our lives, speaking truth in love, 
so that we can continue to grow to be like him and to live for the glory of his name. Does that make sense? It's essential that we understand his method of restoration is in the work of the church. In our Constitution, we have several purposes of discipline, and you can read it later online, or if you'd like a copy, if you don't have access, you can reach out to us. But it talks about how all of this is purpose for us. It is in love. It is in desire for God's best. It is in keeping with a desire for repentance, for reconciliation, for spiritual growth of the individual being disciplined. It is in desire so that other Christians see that we don't just dismiss sin. I mean, if we didn't deal with sin, it would just give the impression that this is just okay for us. And it's not just okay for us, for the purity of the church as a whole, for the good of our corporate witness, and for the glory of God. This is practically part of God's design, and part of why we long for you to be a part of a church, whether it's this one or another one, is that you experience the goodness of God at work in your life, keeping you close and faithful to Him through the community work of the flock. The last point of today's message is to understand the gracious forgiveness that's needed in our heart for this to be possible. How is it possible to receive those who have been rescued. I say this, knowing our own forgiveness, we are called to graciously forgive, receive, and restore stray sheep when they repent. Knowing our own forgiveness, we are called to graciously forgive, to receive, and to restore stray sheep when they repent. After hearing this, Peter went to Jesus and he goes, uh, excuse me? <laughs> That's the paraphrase. This section in verses 21 to 35, and I close with this section here, we read that Peter comes up there in 21 and he goes, um, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? Have, you might have felt this way. Some of you who have been really wounded by another believer. And you go, seriously? And maybe especially if this wounding has been repeated wounding? And you might ask that question, how, how often is this supposed to happen, and how often am I supposed to forgive? Now, the Jewish would say three. Peter raised it to seven, feeling pretty good about himself. Should it be seven times, Jesus? And Jesus says, referencing the story of Laban in Genesis 4, no, 70 times seven. In other words, you are not to condition forgiveness by frequency or by quantity. You remember what Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5? Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy or boast, it's not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way, it's not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Some translations will say it keeps no record of wrongs. Love, true love, is not concerned with quantity of love. It is not concerned with frequency of love. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 3, oh, if you could just understand how high and how broad and how deep and wide is the love of Christ so that you might be filled up with the fullness of God. God's love is not measured like this, Peter. 
It's not like this. So don't limit your forgiveness in quantity or in frequency. And then he tells a story. A story not between God and us, but a story between two brothers. Of one guy who had a huge debt. And it came time for the king to come and collect the debt. And he pled, oh, king, would you have mercy on me? I'll pay you back. And the king gives mercy and lets the guy go free. The king forgives his debt. And yet this dude walks out of the throne room of grace and goes and finds another brother who owes him a fraction of what has just been forgiven him by the king. And this dude demands that it be repaid. And even though the other says, I'm sorry, I'll repay you, he refuses to forgive. And he ends up throwing that guy into prison. And the king finds out about it and basically says, you worthless You worthless servant. Don't you know? Don't you know? That as I have had mercy on you, you should have had mercy on your fellow servant. And Jesus says in verse 35 at the end of the story, so my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive from your The world's worst prison is the prison of an unforgiving heart. He had been forgiven, and he should have forgiven. When you really receive forgiveness and experience it, you will desire to give it. This is why in other places like Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32 the scripture says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And in Colossians chapter 3, something similar, verse 13, it says then, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. As we're considering this call to see those who have been wayward and those who have even hurt us restored back into the fold, you know where it begins? I taught this several years ago, about five or six years ago in a series on forgiveness. You know where it begins? In the cycle of learning to forgive, the starting point is loving your own forgiveness. If you want to learn to forgive, then learn how much God has forgiven you. On a daily basis, learn to live in amazement at the grace God has shown because all of us raised our hands, all of us like sheep have gone astray. We all have turned to our own way. And yet the Lord took on himself the iniquity of us all. And if he has forgiven me and my waywardness, 
then I can forgive my brother or sister in their waywardness. And in my dealings with them, can long, not for their punishment, not for their exile, but long for their restoration, because God has forgiven, given His grace, and restored me. Amen? Amen. So, as we close today, I just want to encourage you. Sin is serious. It is possible for you to go wayward, but Jesus longs to bring you back. Maybe today there's some sin in your life that you have been really struggling with. Maybe that you are causing hurt to others, and you've heard Jesus' admonition today, be serious about sin. You might think that the fence is there, and it's frustrating you, but it is for your good. Jesus longs for you to be with him, and his heart is to restore you. He is a good shepherd, and he has laid down his life for you. If you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive your sin and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. He longs for you to come home.